Asky Anything, a podcast presented by Mosher Consulting. Join us every Wednesday to find out who from Mosher's more than 200 resident experts we'll be talking to and what they're focused on at the moment. Trends, security, setup. Ask ye anything, and we'll give you our best answer. Go! Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ask ye Anything, presented by Mosher Consulting. I'm your host, Angel Leon, Mosher's HR advisor. And this week, we have some repeat offenders with us. We're bringing back Jim Timmerman and Chad Weed to talk about a subject we sort of glossed over during our first conversation. We'll be talking about disaster recovery and backups for your business. Should you have a plan? What should that plan entail? How often should you back up your data? All of that and much more with our resident experts, Jim Timmerman and Chad Wheat. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me once again on Ask e Anything. How are you guys today? Great, wonderful. Thanks for having us back. <laughs> yeah. All right, awesome. Well, the last time we spoke, we provided our audience a lot of great information regarding managing their IT help desk. But along the way, we may have stumbled into something that could have been made into its own conversation. And that's what we're here to, to do today as we're gonna talk about disaster recovery and backups. Um, so I, I was doing some research about this uh, topic yesterday. So I understand that disaster recovery plans are key for any IT expert, and sometimes they should be created in conjunction with that of a business continuity plan. What do you guys think about that? You know, to, to answer that, that's, that's not necessarily true. You know, when we think of disaster recovery, a lot of people just normally think of, oh, my building got hit by a tornado or it got, you know, wiped out, you know, in a fire or, you know, something happened that I can't get into my building. You know, those are those are situations where continuity plans do come into place of like, how are your how are your folks going to work, et cetera. You know, from a disaster recovery could just be essentially that I've been breached there's uh, servers have gone down and you need to spin up new ones. Applications have gone down and you need to um, uh, get them back up and running. So, you know, if you're looking at disaster recovery that way, business continuity just becomes uh, a small component of it. Meaning what are you going to do if we can't get into your building? Well, in today's cloud environment, a lot of that has been answered. And actually it's really kind of funny is even with COVID, you could look at that as, okay, my business continuity plan has to be in place because my, my, workers are remote and away. That being said, yeah, there is there is some correlation there, but more more focused on the on the disaster side of things. Yeah, there's there's several scenarios on you know to consider. Like Jim said, the one we're sort of living through right now is the COVID crisis where people have really had to discover or implement their business continuity. But like Jim mentioned, instead of getting hit by a tornado or natural disaster, there's things such as disgruntled employees to sabotaging critical systems. There's, you know, through social engineering and the dark web, people finding out account credentials on your site. There's there's a whole gamut of different situations that it can occur like that. To Chad's point there, you know, of having, you know, those uh, situations where you have been breached or, or compromised not just from a disaster perspective, but the backup piece of that comes into play pretty quickly because a lot of times, you know, and I'll kind of talk a little bit about our process when we deal with ransomwares or any kind of breaches and so forth, as it relates to some endpoint detection tools that are out there to protect devices. Well, if that happens, we're really restoring from a, from a backup. So we're taking the most current backup we have, building a new device, building a new server and getting that set up and then you know, restoring that backup to that device. 
and then the other, you know, any kind of compromised piece has been removed from the, from the network. So that's where the backup piece becomes really important. And in a lot of companies today, really don't think about it as, wow, that's I really should be thinking that way, and that I need to access this data quickly. And and we're seeing more and more of that, you know, based on this the, the way the the world has kind of changed today. So. Talking about those recovery strategies, um, I was reading a little bit yesterday about IT systems, applications, and data, and that these recoveries should include networks, servers, desktops, laptops, wireless devices, data, and connectivity. So speaking about backups and all of that that I just mentioned, how should a company determine what to back up? What do you think would be uh, needed to be included in that? It's really a question of risk versus reward on help because some companies may do an entire one-for-one -one backup. And I think uh, we've got an example of that, but it all depends on, again, sort of their budget and pain tolerance because you can back up everything, but obviously that's gonna be the most extensive and costly solution from a, from a system standpoint and from a personnel standpoint. Other people only back up critical servers. Some people back up those plus their development servers and any intellectual data type things. So it's, it really depends on, it's like an insurance policy. How far do you want to go? What is your tolerance? If something does happen, the risk and reward. And, and through that into kind of, a, a, you know, and Chad is spot on with that is, you know, you need to prioritize what are your, are your critical applications and systems. And then from that, you want to start saying, okay, what do I need to back up with that? And what, you know, what's the level I need to get to? And, and through that, it's, you know, you know, the, the, the first thing everyone says is like, you know, hey, let's, let's, let's take uh, email out of it because email technically is the most mission critical application that any company has. And if they, if they don't right. tell you they're lying, because that's where <laughs> it starts, you know, everything's communication is made through that. So with a lot of folks that don't, that, that haven't, you know, moved to a uh, office or a Microsoft 365 platform or a cloud-based structure on that, that that's a lot of, you know, what needs to come up, you know, having to get that email server up and running and, and getting things going and then looking at your core ERPs, uh, your CRMs, et cetera, and then looking through that. But the bigger question on that is, okay, you know, not so much what's mission critical from an application perspective. It's also looking at what devices need to come into play because we, you know, in, in this wireless world we live in, it's easy to connect. So having a you know, network firewall configuration may not be as critical because if I can get this server up and get it connected, then I can get folks to VPN to it. They can get into it from anywhere, you know, which we're seeing today. So, so that becomes critical. And then, you know, through that, it's also looking at the next phase of that is, okay, how much data do you need? And at what point are you, are you willing to accept that you're, you're going to be behind, you know, right. or, or may not be able to recover from that? So. Yeah, and, and there's there's a difference between becoming functional once again and becoming fully functional back to where you were before the disaster occurred. And again, large companies may be considered about the loss of income. Some measure it even in, in minutes or hours as opposed to smaller companies, which may be able to, to tolerate you know a, a longer period of outage. So let me ask you along those same lines, because you guys just brought up a lot of good points, but when creating a disaster recovery plan, and we're going to get back to backups here in a second, what contingencies should be considered? That's a great question. Is A lot of it is, you know, the first thing we normally look at is where's this going to live? 
when you look at disaster recovery and because you know the, the piece of that that's going to start from is from your backups so we were kind of talking about this earlier about the components of separating business continuity and disaster recovery because business continuity is really looked at as my building i can't access my building therefore my workers i have to go set up workstations somewhere else i have to re, i have to be at a, a remote location because a, a good example would be here in the midwest is a tornado took my building out okay well with that, I need to, to find a place to begin for my employees to sit and work at. You know, companies have like, hey, we've got suites in a hotel we look at. We've got a partner down the street that has given us office space. We're within this, we're a tenant within this property management company that they'll put us up in another building of theirs that's vacant, you know, stuff like that. So, and then through that, they, you know, they've got to walk through all the different pieces that have to happen in order to get that remote new location up and running telephones, internet connection, et cetera. So a lot of that has to be defined. But when we talk about disaster recovery, that could be anything meaning from, you know, my my ser server has died. Uh, it's, you know, there's a bad core in it. There's a bad disk. I cannot, it can't be functional. So I have to go start up another one, mm -hmm. move things over to that and begin to work again. And, uh, and, and again, sorry to interrupt, Jim. Again, that's all changed in the last decade or so with the, the rise of the internet, really, because several, several years ago, I won't say how old I am. I worked for a company that had a, uh, they had pre-rented a warehouse and they had workstations and everything set up. So if a disaster took out the main headquarters, they could get their essential personnel over there to work in this warehouse and be basically ready to go from the start. But with the internet era and connectivity the way it is, and again, using COVID as an example, people can work from almost anywhere. Now you don't want everybody, especially your secure systems, maybe to do that, but it's really changed the way business continuity and disaster recovery have developed over the years. That is true. And then, you know, you, you, you put into the fact that, you know, you've got larger bandwidth so that your your risk of how much data do you are you willing to lose becomes greater and you know the the you know we normally sit down with clients and talk about disaster recovery and business continuity and backups the first question that always comes up is or the first two questions that we ask are always well how much money are you willing to budget for this and how much data are you willing to lose because you could build the most elaborate backup scheme and right. in the tools out there there's 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 different platforms to do this within and environments to do this within but that becomes really expensive you know you have your what we would call like a, a, a hot backup which means that we've got a replicated environment sitting somewhere else that is actually running in parallel to your uh, production environment replication of data all the stuff that's configured the same anything that happens over here happens over there and it's running in parallel and it's either in the uh, uh, office or, or location, or it's possibly in another location, whether that would be in a colo or out in the cloud or wherever, and they're running in parallel. So if something happens here, they just instantly flip over and they're up and running. And then there's a catch up game once the other ones come back up. Those are really expensive, you know, and depending on what you want to do, but your risk is pretty small. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, larger companies out there that are doing what's called like follow the sun kind of backups and, and recovery is that they're basically have this re these multiple redundant systems that are all over the world at different data centers so if anything should happen in that region it just flips over to the next one or the next mm -hmm. one so that if anything ever happens we're covered that's um, sort of how the uh 
AWS and Azure work, for example, they have data centers located across the globe. And when something happens, they can, you know, mm -hmm. isolate it and move to the next one. And even in that too, you know, you can you start and from there, you kind of start to scale down into what is the best solution for that, for that company or of our clients. You know, it's, a lot of that is again, based on cost and how much data they're willing to lose. You know, and there's, and there's a, a multitude of different products and services out there to help support a lot of those. Jim, you mentioned data, data recovery expenses, and, and that ties into the next question that I'm going to ask, because it has to do uh, with this topic, specifically with recovery plans. What are some of the common ways hackers use to try and gain access to information? What do you think are some of the sneaker ways that they use to get that data? Because at the end of the day, talking about data expenses, if you if you want your data to be safe, I think it's safe to say that, for lack of a better term, that it's worth the investment. It's worth the, the expense, correct? Yes, that is true. Data encryption is the key to that. You know, ensuring that it's in, you know, encrypted in movement, it's encrypted on the drive, you know, that, that, that's the key. Chad, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah. One of the ways people don't realize is with all the social platforms today, hackers can social engineer and they can look for certain data on people's public profiles. And, you know, this goes from as far as, you know, like there's the intentional kind where they're phishing through an email, say, oh, click here, and they can get information that way. But people have to realize that anything you put on the internet especially if it's related to your business, that can be social engineered and that can give hackers certain bits of information that they may need to break into your system, mm -hmm. both personal and professional systems. And that also brings up another point, you know, when we're talking about like, you know, a, a lot of protection is, in, is done around individuals, PII data, you know, your personal data, your bank accounts, et cetera. But one of the things a lot of companies often, often have a time in time again, forget about is their intellectual capital, what they do, how they do it, their processes, if they're, if they're in the manufacturing world or, or, you know, pharma or any kind of manufacturing, there's, there's, you know, patents that are pending and information there that is that they're maintaining and holding private for future release of a product or, or service, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what ends up happening a lot of times is people, you know, there, there's so much of a wall built around this HIPAA data and PII, personal data, don't let your social security numbers get out, you know, because that seems to be where everything's noticed quickly because it impacts individuals. But what a lot of people forget about is that, hey, if, I, if they open the doors up a little bit on their intellectual capital, that makes it a lot easier to get in. So now you get into that kind of you know, corporate espionage where we're stealing patents and stealing data and being able to get to market quicker than others. A lot of time they're spending more time focusing on that personal data than in forgetting that they have intellectual capital that they need to protect as well. So. Yeah, another example of that, Jim, is we've seen this and heard this from some of our competitors, for example, is uh, some companies will ask for uh, a consultation or an assessment. And depending on how detailed you get, they can use that information and just cut you out of it really uh, right. to implement the suggestions and the infrastructure you have. So typically, you know, in our case, we're, we're careful not to give the exact details, but more of a rough form. But I know I've heard that happening several times where someone will ask for three proposals, they'll take the best one and run with it themselves rather than engaging in the consultant firm. Oh yeah. Yes. That, that happens a lot. So speaking of, you know, in a case like this, in case of an emergency, how often and what should we test to ensure that all of our data is safe? 
Uh, there's several types of disaster recovering tests on hill. One is simply a paper test where the team sits down and reads through and annotates your your plans and makes sure that they seem sound on paper. It's sort of like the whiteboarding, right? Uh, there's a walkthrough test where you get your stakeholders together to identify any issues or gaps that they see there. And these are all sort of theoretical tests. Moving on to the more practical ones, there's simulations you can go through if you have, uh, for example, you simulate a disaster and have the team actually act like but not perform the steps you're going to do. Now where we start getting into actual systems down and testing your systems, you can do a parallel test where you've got as Jim mentioned before, a one-to-one environment, and you pretty much pull the plug on one <laughs> and make sure it's running. <laughs> it can also be called you know, a cutover test. And these things are important. And a lot of companies we know, they'll go through the first theoretical parts, but they never truly test the systems where they're running and they pull the plug and, and see if it'll cut over successfully. Um, so I think uh, that the timing of that and how often you do that is also important. Yeah, and to that point of the timing of it and also what is it that you're going to test from a DR perspective is that, you know, we always try to do testing twice a year. We'll do what we call a sample test. We have one or two applications or environments that will take down, spin up the new environment and let that run for, you know, a, a few days, a week, maybe two, depending on, you know, how comfortable we feel and then switch it back over so that we can see that we've got the redundancy in place and that we're not losing anything between that transaction. And then at the end of the year, usually, you know, the other time, so semi, you know, annual, you know, the second test we would do would be a bigger, larger sampling where we, again, we are taking, you know, multiple applications down and, and environments down and then spinning the, you know, the backups back up there and then letting that run again for a couple, three weeks to a month and then dropping things back over. And, and in some instances too, we may actually look at that and say, okay, hey, we're going to make the backup production, let that stay till the next test. So that may run for six months. And then in turn, what was the old production would stay the backup. And then we switch things over. And a lot of that's based on what the client has, is, what we've architected with the client. And sometimes it can, again, depend on the size of the company you're talking about. For example, a small law office versus a multi-departmental divisional uh, manufacturing firm may mm-hmm. be more comfortable testing individual departments rather than the whole enterprise. Correct. Yep. Interesting. And Chad, you mentioned in one of your answers earlier about timing. So let me ask you both this question. How do you know when it's time to modernize your methods? For example, at what point does a cloud migration make sense? How can a company identify their tipping point? That's a tough question to really answer. There's a lot of companies that have fear in the cloud, in the fact that it's, you know, I still need to see, I need to open up a door and I need to see blinking lights. Okay. That makes Mm -hmm. them, that makes a lot of IT directors feel safe. Right. And if I, if I can't see it, I can't touch it, and I can't, you know, really, it, it's hard for them to, to, to wrap their minds around the fact that there is a giant data center somewhere that these servers are living at, and you just have a little box of it, you know. A lot of times, uh, when, you know, when we look at, cl- you know, clients that, you know, kind of would justify getting them kind of what I would call cloud ready, is we look at their spend. Okay, what are you spending today? What's your environment look like? How old is it? And what, what are you doing to maintain? And what are you spending to maintain that? And mm-hmm. 
you know, those are the ones that we look at to say they're they're definitely ready for for cloud readiness or or they're ready for a cloud movement because of the fact that there's a lot of cost savings there. And with that, we also look at what are they processing and what are their hours. So how much compute time is actually being spent on average. So if yeah. it's a nine to five organization and they've got servers running, 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 there's a lot of cost there. Well, if I can, if I can migrate them over, you know, put the commute time to kind of shut things down after a certain period of time where I'm not paying for that, that cost drops a little bit. So, you know, it's kind of almost like a, a buy versus lease analogy because you really don't own anything in the cloud, but the benefit you get from it is, is all your updates, you're, you're not having to worry about, you know, continually expend on licenses because it's kind of all included within that uptime. You know, you, you still have to build the machines out there. So your uptime, you're increasing your risk for, for better uptime and better performance. A, a good way to identify maybe when it's time is to bring in an outside firm uh, to do an audit or a security assessment of your systems. And frankly, if, you, as as Jim sort of pointed out, when you you identify there's certain risks in uptime and uh, loss of capital, then you really need to upgrade. And, and typically, any kind of security or IT systems audit can identify the most at-risk systems, and companies may be able to do it more piecemeal. You know, like transferring all of their email, for example, an easy way to get it on, like for example, Microsoft. Office 365, so they migrate their email systems and then other systems as they're identified as vulnerable to a, a disaster scenario. Yeah, and that's shameless a, plug, that's something that we would do, correct? Correct, yep. We, we, we've done a number of what we call like cloud readiness assessments and, and audits in that, that. And that's usually when we onboard a client, it's one of the first things we really look at is what their environment is what they have, what is it doing, what's critical, and then look for ways to uh, improve that, not just from a performance perspective, but also from a cost side of things too. A great example of that is we had a client that had two file servers. They had like literally close to each one of them had probably close to a terabyte of data on it. There was no applications living on it. It was just file folders. They were just storing documents on it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what documents are out there? How are you managing those? So it kind of leads into kind of like a document management type discussion. But at the end of the day, it became if something ever happened to that, there's key documents out there, key data out there that they need to have. So if anything happened to that server, they could lose that. You know, we for, touched on that a little bit earlier, Jim, when you, you talked about disaster scenarios where hardware fails or, or you know CPU fails on a box. But on hell, we also have to consider the age and dating of your software versions. Right. Uh, we've had clients before that were running such an old version of, of software because their systems were dependent on it that the manufacturer, the vendor had stopped supporting it. That opens mm. up a huge gap. What do you do if you have a disaster and the vendor says, hey, sorry, this, you know, we end of life this two years ago. So that's another, I guess, vulnerability that people need to look at very, very seriously. Yep. That is true. I mean, there's been a number of times where we've come in and, you know, there's applications or tools that they have that if moved, they're probably not going to work again. The biggest example, I guess, is Y2K that everybody probably remembers. Right. Some systems weren't going to work after that. Yep. So, Jim, let me let me go back to something you said at the beginning of this answer about the cloud versus IT managers still wanting to see those servers on a room somewhere. <laughs> is there a benefit to either or? What can you tell us about that? You know, in, in all honesty, there really 
there's a benefit to the cloud and there's, there's some still benefits to having stuff on-prem. A lot of it is just based on preference and cost. I mean, there's a cost savings, you know, capital expense versus, you know, CapEx versus OpEx expenditures. And, and depending on how your organization looks at having equipment and the depreciation of that and the, and the, and the, the liability of that. So yeah, it's, it's simplifying it. It's almost like that lend versus buy scenario. Yep. Yeah. You're going you're to pay more to lease the equipment and the compute time. However, your vendor is going to be uh, in charge of making mm-hmm. sure that you have the sufficient power, that you'll always have, you know, you be able to scale up without having to spend a lot of capital on hardware upgrades, software upgrades, infrastructure upgrades. Yep, definitely true. And it, 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 it's a great way to look at things. It's, it's, a, it's a buy versus lease situation. You know, and you can also look to other things, just, you know, there's hybrid solutions out there that say, hey, some things will live out in the cloud, some things will live on-prem. That's us coming in and looking at what is there and what makes sense to go out there. You know, a lot more of the benefits of higher uptimes and, you know, and achieving those five nines and performance and, and all that, your risks of getting that are better in the cloud versus being on-prem. You know, due to the fact that, you know, you, you have the ability to spin things up quickly uh, mm, and put them off quickly. So if, you know, a good example would be is if you're, it's the end of the year, you're running at full capacity and, you know, your, your operations are running at full capacity and it's, hot, it's consuming a lot of your, you know, bandwidth and, and compute in, in your environment. But you need to run these at the end of the year reports. And it's going to hog up even more. Well, in those situations, you could spin things up quickly, run those reports. When they're done, shut it down and, and still be able to maintain your uh, performance levels. Right. Uh, and most, most cloud-based providers also have a way that you can, you know, just spin those up, not even owning them, where you can sort of borrow them for, for a fee, obviously. But you can spin it up during times of high productivity and then... Uh, they go offline again when you're not at capacity anymore. Yeah. And there's also that other piece too of, of moving data around, you know, from a, from a retention perspective, instead of having things all sitting on here, just taking up space, taking up space, within the cloud, you can move that around in the like, you know, less expensive storage where you still have access to it, but it's not doing anything except just sitting there. So right. you're not, you're not running applications. You're just, it's just sitting there, but you can bring it back in as needed. You know, a lot of times you'll have to pay for the, for the movement of that data, but that's right. You know, yeah. It's like, it's a uh, near time as opposed to like real time data. Yeah. It's interesting because it could work like its own disaster recovery because you could have data stored on the premises, but then you could also have part of it in the cloud, which should help you, like you were saying, Jen, spin it up quickly if you need it. Whereas if something were to happen in that physical device, then you have that backup, if you will, or you have more data in the cloud. So that's very interesting. So gentlemen, I want to end this by asking you a question to see if you guys have any disaster recovery stories that you'd like to share with us, something that you can share with us about maybe a situation where you ran into your career where you had to do something with that. You always give us the really good questions. <laughs> that's true. That's, I'm trying to think. Let me example. think of a few. Some of the major ones, I don't know if Jim, you have any personal experience, but it's like when somebody's website gets hacked and mm. they have to restore it quickly, especially somebody who's making money off the web. One one example on hell is, uh, and I'm sure probably everybody listening to this can relate, is localized power outages where 
they're doing construction on infrastructure near your business park or site and without warning or advanced notice, all of a sudden your building goes dead. For cloud people, their computing power on the cloud, that doesn't affect them, except it, it does affect your local workforce. Now, in situations like that, like, for example, our company, Mosier Consulting, it's pretty easy to, to get over. We Everybody goes home and works remotely, and everything is pretty much how they left it. But that's probably a scenario that most users are familiar with, where they're working along, and then suddenly at 3.30 in the afternoon, bam, lights are off, everything's off. I think that's a very common scenario, uh, Chad. I, I agree. A lot of, too, is Chad's point, too, is just run into a lot of recovery situations where the environment, you know, a disk has gone, a disk has gone bad. A lot of times we'll have to, you know, build the server and, and run, you know, and, and we'll need that, you know, that kind of becomes the plan of, you know, Chad had mentioned, uh, you know, we walk through those scenarios of, okay, hey, you know, you know, the tabletop exercises where you're like, hey, if this happens, what do you do? And, and we really, we have that happen a lot more than we'd like to just because hardware, you know, it's like anything, mm -hmm. some parts right. fails, things break, it's IT, you know, sometimes things are out of our control. You know, we try to, as much as we try to walk, you know, try, you know, track the breadcrumbs to prevent it from happening, it will happen. So, you know, it's, we don't take it lightly and we do take backups very seriously in that we monitor those on a daily basis, both um, throughout the day, just to ensure that they're running and they happen. So if they fail, we need to make sure we're on top of it to make sure it's recovered and get it going. So we don't lose any of that data. And we do take disaster recovery very seriously because, you know, it's our responsibility to our clients is to ensure they're up and running, whether that would be just in the day-to-day -day operations or in a, a major catastrophe or in situations like we have now with COVID, they need to be productive and that's our responsibility. Yeah. And I think right. it, it all comes down on how this whole conversation, and it's a quote most often attributed to Benjamin Franklin, if you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. Mm-hmm. That is a good segue to the ending of this episode, uh, Chad and Jim. Thank you very much for another wonderful episode today where we learn a lot about disaster recovery and backups for your organization. You're very Gentlemen, welcome. Gentlemen, thank you once again. All right, thank you. And that's it for this week's edition of Ask Me Anything, presented by Mosher Consulting. We hope you enjoyed this conversation about disaster recovery, and we'd love if you would join us next week when we continue to dive deeper with our resident experts and what they're currently working on. Until then, so long, everybody. Thank you.